Welcome to Mom and Up. With your co-host, developmental psychologist Dr. Marty Erickson and Dr. Aaron Erickson, maternal child health specialist and nurse practitioner. Here's my grandma Marty. And here's Aaron, my mom and I. Welcome to Mom Enough. I'm Marty Erickson here with my daughter Erin, and today we're going to be talking about topics related to college in today's world. Um, this is a topic that is of interest to us increasingly every week as Erin's teenage kids move closer to that time when they have to make these important decisions and figure out how they're going to present themselves to the places of their choice. Um, but we are really honored to have a guest with us who's been here before. Before, one of my favorite authors and, and Aaron's, Paul Tuff, who is the author of three previous books, including the best-selling How Children Succeed, Grit, Curiosity, and the Hidden Power of Character. Um, that's a book that he talked about with us a few years ago, and it's been translated into 27 languages. Um, so congratulations on that, Paul. Thank you so much. Um, Paul also is a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, a regular contributor to This American Life, and an acclaimed public speaker on education, inequality, and success. He lives in Austin, Texas, and Montauk, New York. That's a nice combination. <laughs> yes, when it gets extremely hot in Austin, it's nice to have Montauk to go to. For sure. Yeah, well, I have Minnesota and California, so uh, nice. I, I have that balance at this stage of my life, too. And I have Minnesota. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, she but. she gets to come to my house in California every I once do. in a while if she behaves well. <laughs> so, um, anyway, for those of you who are listening, if you want more information about Paul Tuff's um, very interesting body of work, you can find that at paultuff.com, which we uh, link to here as well. So, welcome, Paul, and uh, really excited to hear you talk a bit about this book, which certainly got me thinking on lots of levels. Thanks so much. It's great to be back. So, Paul, what's the core message or theme of this book, and where did you go to find answers to fill the book with such great content? So the, the book uh, looks at the intersection of two big American themes, one being higher education and the other being social mobility or the ability of a young person to sort of rise above uh, the state where they were born. And uh, I think not so long ago, the relationship between those two ideas was one that was pretty clear. Like in the United States, higher education was this engine of social mobility. It was the way that if you were growing up, you know, a, a working class or poor kid, um, going to a great college was the thing that could change your life. And in some ways, I think it still is for individual kids. Um, in the book, I write about a bunch who, uh, you know, start off in, in pretty modest circumstances and through higher education are able to really change their lives. But as a system, um, uh, I feel like that engine of social mobility has broken down. And now higher education is more likely to serve as an obstacle uh, to the ambitions of low-income and working-class kids uh, and not as the thing that's going to help them change. And to answer the other part of your question, where did I go? I went all over. So I counted up not long ago, and I went to 21 different states. It took me six years to report this book. Um, so I've, I've been all over. And, and the fun part of it was getting to talk to these young people, talking to lots of young people uh, in high school and college, and trying to understand their stories about what it was like to be trying to negotiate the system. Well, that's so fascinating. And I'm, I'm really curious to learn more about 
how this shift happened where higher ed no longer became uh, um, a mode of social mobility. So um, I think my mom has a question for you. I do. I just, I just want to hear you talk a little bit about what you learned about the experience for these students that you were meeting with. I, I mean, that's quite an undertaking. You spent six years um, doing this research, I understand, and you know, yeah. as you said, visiting twenty-one states. So, how you know, how can you distill all of that into a, a manageable answer for a, a <laughs> relatively short interview like this? But what what's the experience like for these kids? I think it. I think. I. I mean. I think it depends. It depends on the kid, and it depends on where they're going to school. Uh, but I think mostly it's just confusing. Um, I, I feel like higher education, especially for if your parents didn't go to college, uh, if you're a first-generation college student, uh, the process of applying to college, the process of trying to figure out how to pay for it, and even the process of going um, is is really confusing. And I think we do not do a good job of trying to make that process. Clear. You know, we have such, compared to other countries, we have such a, a, a decentralized and autonomous system um, that trying to compare, you know, public education with uh, public higher education with private higher education, individual uh, colleges, uh, financial aid packages, you know, knowing what the right choice is, is, is really hard. Uh, and then one thing, you know, this is a more specific uh, uh, phenomenon, but uh, I spent some time with uh, low-income students at highly selective institutions, um, you know, Ivy League-style institutions, and they have a whole separate uh, struggle, which is uh, not academic, I think, as some people suspect, but more sort of social and cultural, that those institutions are now so highly uh, populated by rich kids, uh, by, by kids who, you know, can afford uh, lots of SAT tutoring and can afford the tuition, um, that when you're a, a working class or poor kid and you end up at one of these uh, highly selective institutions, it, you just feel like an outsider. And that affects you know, your whole four years. Uh, and some colleges are doing a better job of trying to make those students feel more at home and more connected. Um, but for everyone I talk to who has, is going through that process um, of being a low-income student at a highly selective institution, it is, uh, it's confusing and often uh, a painful process, even though they know they're getting a fantastic education. Well, you wrote some uh, beautiful, eloquent stories about particular students, and uh, I think you know they need people need to read those to really get the gist of them. But I have to say, I really identified with um, with those young people who were coming from families where college had not been a part of the scene, and I was distressed to hear that students are, you know, sort of left to their um, <laughs> to their own strategies to try to figure this all out unless they happen to be in a, you know, a very um, kind of elite high school that has a whole lot of resources to offer all the students. I think back to my own days back in high school, that was about 100 years ago, um, actually 55 years ago. <laughs> I'm going to my reunion in a couple of weeks. But I came from a family where my dad had uh, only a ninth grade education and my mom did finish high school but then my parents you know got pregnant and had me when they were 18 and I I knew nothing about college other than that I wanted to go but it was a very vague idea and no one in my supposedly good public school in Iowa where I grew up ever talked to me about college and you know I just I just don't know. I didn't know why that was. I didn't even really stop and think about it. I just thought this is the way it works. And I, you know, I could have made a very bad choice. As it turns out, I went to a, a very fine state 
uh, school and got some scholarships, but I had to kind of put all the pieces together myself. And I would have hoped that it would be very different for young people now, but that certainly is not what came through in your book. Yeah, I mean, it is shocking that this that 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 hasn't changed. I mean, the 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 need for a college degree has increased so much over the, those fifty five years, right? Like sure. fifty five years ago, a college degree was a really good idea, but it wasn't essential, right? Like you could you could still find a, a path into a decent sort of middle class uh, career in life without a college degree. Now that is, uh, without some kind of higher education, that is increasingly difficult. And the opportunities for, for kids with just a high school degree are so much worse than they were back then. Sure. Um, and yet still, we have not solved this problem. And, and especially if you are not going to one of, you know, those sort of gold-plated uh, American high schools, if you're going to a rural school or uh, a school in a low-income uh, urban neighborhood, um, it is really hard still for those students to find good information about where they should go, whether they should go, how they should go, how they should pay for it. Uh, I, I'm just was shocked by how many young people I talked to who said, yeah, I just had no clue what was going on when I was in junior or senior year. Mm. Well, and, yeah, and I, I would think the Internet has really changed things quite a bit. When I was in high school, I remember we had a parent volunteer-led kind of um, career center and they would have these big books, like telephone books, that you could flip through right, right, and right. read about different <laughs> colleges. And, I mean, there are so many different colleges. It's an absolutely mind-boggling thing to to even consider, like, what, where to go? And, and I think, boy, the inter- Internet has probably made that quite a bit easier. But, I mean, even for me, I, I'm, I didn't really I, – I don't remember even really going on college tours. And, you know, yeah. I mean, it's – I. I, in fact, except for one of the colleges I applied to, I I didn't even visit them. I just read about them in the book and requested some information by mail. So and I'm her mother. Shame. Yeah, on I me. know. I was just thinking, but who I, are yeah, we going to point well, fingers at? Well, no. yeah, no. But I actually, think it we just did wasn't... go to a couple of colleges, but not. But um, no. But, but, but I you think, know, well, we weren't yeah. looking very broadly either. Right. Really. No, and but, I and I think a lot of the college tours my brother went on. He was exploring more things, and I don't know why I didn't consider this. I mean, a lot of it was probably driven by me. I just didn't. I don't know. It's so fascinating right. to think about. But I'm curious. Well, yeah, go ahead. Well, there's two things I would just say about that. I mean, first of all, yeah, I do think the Internet has made information, I mean, as, as in everything, it's made information easier. I mean, there's more information out there, but it, I feel like it's, as, as, again, as with everything, it's made it more bewildering, right? Like, you can, you, you can get information now about thousands of colleges, but really, it's amazing how much, you know, like a good personal, like someone sitting down with you who understands you and understands the college system and says, like, you know, you should think about this and maybe consider this place, like that just makes such a such a big difference. The, the other thing I'll say is, you know, thinking about your experience, your your brother's experience, and then you know the experience of young people today is like, like these are huge decisions that like seventeen year olds are making, right? Um, and like, of course, you 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 know, you weren't clear on what decision you were making because you were seventeen, <laughs> um, and like seventeen year olds are notoriously confused about everything. And so the fact that we now have put uh, have a system where so much pressure is on the, the actions and the decisions. Uh, of 17-year-olds, and as well as the decisions that are sort of made for them by their institutions, um, it it seems a little crazy. Well, I'm curious. You've talked a lot about low-income kids and or kids coming from families where nobody's maybe gone to college. What about students who come from well-off families or highly educated families? How, How does this system work for them? 
Well, I mean, mostly it works much better for them. I mean, it, it, like there are great institutions of higher education out there in the United States today, and if you have the right family resources, um, you are much more likely to be admitted to one of those uh, institutions. And if people in your family went to college, you're much more likely to feel at home uh, and get a great education. And, and that education, economists will explain to us, uh, makes it more likely that you're going to hold down a high-paying job when you're an adult. So in lots of ways, the system is designed to work really well for those kids. On, on a deeper level, on a sort of like emotional and psychological level, uh, I'm not so convinced that the system is working great for those kids either. So uh, I spent a bunch of time at this um, SAT prep uh, testing center in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., where mostly pretty well-off students were um, studying, often studying a whole lot for the SAT and the ACT uh, with this tutor, uh, a man named Ned Johnson, who I'd been following around for a while. And, uh, you know, they were, like, getting all sorts of advantages. Their test, their scores were going way up. They were getting into much better institutions than if they hadn't gone there. But their lives, to me, just seemed incredibly stressful. Um, and, and a lot of them felt really burned out, and it just seemed like a hard way to spend your adolescence, you know, just endlessly taking tests and studying for tests. Uh, so I do feel like there's some way that having made this system so competitive, so sort of winner-take-all, um, it certainly is harmful to the losers, but it's not necessarily all that great for for the winners either. Well, I think that's a really important point, Paul. And, you know, I'm, I'm a psychologist by uh, by training and, and career. And I'm so concerned about the very high levels of anxiety and depression and suicide and suicide attempts among college students. And in some ways, many of those kids who have had so many advantages, but also a lot of pressure at every turn, um, are really carrying a very heavy burden, I think, a very heavy emotional burden. And I, I know some colleges, some universities, top tier and, and others are really making a great um, focus these days on the mental health needs of their students, um, but not nearly enough. And there are so many kids still who, uh, you know, where they're, they're roommates and their classmates don't know how to spot the signs of some of these serious mental health challenges. And I think we just have a long way to go. Those of us who work in, in universities, as I did through the through my career, um, really have a lot to do to try to put preventive measures in place. But it also goes back to the kind of pressure that kids are under from a very early age. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the message that a lot of you know, especially high achieving um, upper middle class kids here in high school is that it's all just about this one thing. Everything you're doing as you go through your life is not about like becoming a person or you know finding happiness or finding or learning anything. It's about getting into college and getting into the right college and getting into the college that will impress your parents and your friends. Um, and then either you do or you don't. And if you do, maybe you feel less valued as a result. I'm sorry, if you don't, maybe you feel less valued as, as a result. But if you do, I think there's also the, the sort of like, is this all there is sort of, sort of feeling? Yeah. Like, wait, I spent, I spent all these years like trying to do one thing. Now, wait, who am I? What am I doing here? Why? What was this all about? And I, I feel like that is, I mean, you know, as a psychologist, like that is what, uh, what adolescence is for, right? It's for lots yeah. of things. But part of it is about figuring out who you are and how, how you exist without your parents. And, um, and college is, is inevitably going to be a part of that. And the fact that we've loaded all of this extra pressure onto these years um, just means, I think, that it's harder and harder for kids to, to go through that sometimes messy process of late adolescence and early adulthood uh, in, a, in a, a sort of happy and satisfying way. 
Well, I'm grateful that I had a very happy college experience at Iowa State University and then later graduate school at the University of Minnesota. But my undergrad experience, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And, uh, uh, you know, I I have to hold on to that as I look at my grandchildren and, you know, think about the processes they'll be going through very soon and in choosing the college that's the right match for them. And I hope they have half the joy. I hope they have twice the joy, actually, um, that I had during that time of my life. So when you were talking about the SAT tutor and uh, the, the, this con- this idea that these kids are maybe having uh, inflated scores because of privilege and that maybe not landing in the college that serves them the best, did your reporting give you any insights into the big college admission scandal earlier this year? Yeah, I mean, so that that uh, it was it was this sort of moment where where stuff that I'd been thinking about and writing about for for uh, a few years suddenly was on the front pages, and I wasn't quite sure how to take it. And so, uh, but it, I feel like it did give me some insights. I spent a lot of time reading through the FBI wiretap transcripts uh, from these conversations between this um, crooked college counselor Rick Singer and the super wealthy parents who had employed him to as it turned out, to undertake this illegal scheme to get their kids into college. And what struck me, uh, watching, reading these transcripts, was how these parents did not sound like they were, you know, involved in a criminal conspiracy. It didn't sound like some sort of criminal gang. It sounded like every other upper-middle-class parent. You know, they were, like, complaining about how crazy college admissions was and can you believe we have to start this early and, like, what a nutty system. Um, and, you know, despite the fact that, like, what they were doing was super illegal and, and super wrong. Uh, and But it, I, I do feel like for, for parents who are, for those sort of upper middle class and upper class parents uh, who have these ambitions for their kids and don't know exactly how to, how to focus them and really care a lot about where their kids go to college, it, it, there just is like this line that you that that you cross where you cross into this kind of craziness, you know. Um, and I think like certainly there's a difference between crossing that line into illegality, as those parents are alleged to have done, and just you know spending a ton on SAT prep and you know sending your kid to the right tennis camp and all the other things that parents do to help their kids get into the right college. But it's it's definitely a spectrum, right? It's definitely a continuum, um, and that kind of madness I think is common to a lot of us. Well, in these these admissions tests too, I've always had some concerns about this, and I mean, I'm actually very concerned about it as a parent because I have one child who's just an extraordinary test taker, but st- uh, struggles quite a bit more to get homework done and stay on top of things, and then I have another child who's historically done terribly on standardized tests, yet super efficient gets homework done really quickly. They have comparable grades, um, kind of similar levels of achievement at school. But but I think, you know, in the one case, I'm certain the one will have a much higher test score than the other. And it, it, it kind of, I, I feel like worried about it already because it's like, okay, so one child's not going to be acknowledged for all the great things they they would bring to any university or college they went to and the other may get into a university or college that actually could be extremely stressful for them and so um, I'd like to know a little bit more kind of about what's happening with SAT, ACT and um, with those kinds of tests and, and how that plays into this. 
Yes, I read about I read about those tests a lot in this book. Uh, during the years that I was reporting this book, the College Board, which runs the SAT, had sort of undertaken this campaign to change the reputation of the SAT. And, to, and uh, I think for a long time, the SAT has been seen rightly as as a tool that mostly helps rich kids and makes it harder for low income students to get into uh, elite colleges. And um, you know, because t- SAT scores correlate really, really strongly with uh, family income much more than than high school GPA does, and so the the uh, College Board undertook this campaign to change that reputation to uh, either actually become or or seem more equitable. Um, and so I got to I got to sort of watch as a few of these different uh, parts of the campaign, different experiments, different programs uh, were rolled out, and mostly nothing changed. Um, and mostly, uh, still, the SAT continues to be this this thing that really benefits some some kids, mostly rich kids, and and mostly benefit doesn't benefit others. But one of the things that that is started to happen that I think is potentially relevant for your um, for your kids is that more and more colleges are going test optional. It's still a minority of colleges, uh, but it, it, it is continuing to happen, and I think it's really important. So it means that, that a college can, uh, you can apply to, this, to a test optional college and not submit scores and just say, I just want you to look at the rest of my application, my grades, my you know, letters of recommendation, my extracurricular activities, my personal essay. That's who I am, um, and that's what you should base, uh, make your, base your decision on. And I think that's a, a real benefit to a lot of students, and especially to the kind of kids who are less likely to do well on uh, standardized test scores compared to their their high school grades. And that's you know low income students, first generation students, black and Latina students, and women more than men. Those are those are the the uh, demographic cohorts who are most likely uh, to sort of underperform their GPA on standardized tests. So. One of the reasons that so many of these institutions are going test optional is that they want to be able to admit those sorts of students. But when they look at test scores, it's harder. Um, and when these kids get in, they do great. You know, if if you have a great uh, great GPA, uh, like your child, you know that that person is very likely to do very well at college. GPA is a great predictor of how well a student is going to do in college. Um, and uh, and there are lots of places where they can they can get into a, a highly selective institution without having anybody need to think about their test score. So what what did you find out about the way people in these colleges? I mean, both the uh, administrators and admissions people, and also faculty, um, how they're coming to grips with that idea of uh, you know of of the opt-out of testing uh, kind of approach. I, I would think that, and, and part, of, part of my question is that I know there's a very strong belief um, and, and maybe supported by some good data that the SAT is a good predictor of how well students do in college. And I know it's more complicated than that, as you've just, uh, just explained. But what do you think is happening in terms of professors and administrators really accepting that approach? Yeah, I mean, I think you know the 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 value of, of those test scores is a it's a complicated issue, and there's lots of data on on all sides. And certainly, you know, it's, they're not meaningless. Like they they are a decent predictor of how well students will do in college. They're not as good a predictor as um, high school grades are. High school grades, are, most most people agree, are a better predictor. Um, and they do tend to uh, understate the abilities of these certain demographics. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so like, why do why do colleges keep keep accepting them? 
you know, I mean, I think they, they, I think a few reasons. I think, you know, they, they think, well, one, one more piece of data can't hurt, right? Like it's hard to know just based on, on a uh, high school grade. So let's just look at this one more piece of data, right? And then there's a certain logic to that, even if it does tend to make it harder for them to admit, you know, low-income first-generation students. Uh, the second is like I, people who are in academic, uh, who are sort of in, in high up in high academic hierarchies, like they're they're usually people who did pretty well on the SAT. And the ACT, <laughs> yeah, right? I know. Um, I know and, a and, lot of those people. <laughs> exactly right. And so I feel like there is uh, whether it's like institutional or subliminal or like um, uh, subconscious or conscious. I feel like there is among a lot of academics this belief that like yeah this matters like doing well on it on the SAT matters and and I think a lot of um, a lot of academics uh, and and people in academic bureaucracies feel that part of their job is to be a gatekeeper you know like that their job is to is to hold the the door against the unwashed masses that are trying to get an education. And there's lots of ways that education, higher education has changed, but that's like this old traditional idea um, that hasn't totally died out. Like, you know how um, in, uh, sometimes it still happens, but it certainly used to happen more, at, like in, in freshman, you know, calculus and chemistry classes, the professor would like make, you know, two people stand up or three people stand up and say, by the end of the semester, you know, two of you are going to have failed, oh, yeah. only one of you. And, but like that, you know, that... Uh, uh, we now know that's a terrible way to motivate students, um, and it like leads you know it it means you lose a lot of kids who could be really successful in those uh, in that class and in those professions. Um, but I think there is something that is deep in the sort of academic DNA that really believes that like the job of college is to winnow, is to like separate the wheat from the chaff. And when institutions like just change that mindset and say, oh, wait, maybe our job is to actually educate all our students <laughs> to the best of their abilities um, and to help them get where they need to go, uh, they start adopting very different strategies and very different um, practices. And when they do, those kids are much more likely to succeed. Mm. Well, so what should we do differently? And I, and I know this isn't a policy book, but you really have a lot of uh, have gained a lot of important information, and I think have some good ideas about this. So, what, what should we what should we do differently? Well, so I would I would divide the, my answer into two parts. So, when, when I think when we're talking about like private institutions, especially the most highly selective ones, like there 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 isn't a lot that we can we the public can do to uh, to make those institutions change. They've just got to decide to change, right? And but the change that they should make is to have more equity in their admissions to admit more low income students. Um, they they mostly are admitting very few, and it would not be difficult for them to find great uh, low income students. It would may not be difficult for them to pay for it. The thing that's going to have to change is just for for everyone, and especially people who have connections to those institutions as alumni, as students, as parents, as employees, to put pressure on those institutions. You know, the, like the, the the government doesn't have a lot of levers to change those institutions, but but uh, people who are close to them, especially alumni, have a lot of uh, power to make those institutions change. More broadly, and I think more importantly, uh, what we need to change is, is public higher education, right? Like that is that is our responsibility as members of the public. 
And we have been going in exactly the wrong direction over the last uh, 10 or 20 years in terms of how we think about public higher education. We have been, uh, the public, every state almost, has been removing uh, funding from higher education. The per uh, student higher education budget uh, in the country has gone down by an inflation adjusted 16% uh, since 2001 at a moment when actually, you know, our young people need uh, good higher education more than ever. And that's just crazy, right? We have put, we, we have changed the basic equation of higher education in the country from being something that we saw as a public good, uh, as something that benefits uh, us all collectively, to something that we've made um, a sort of a competitive uh, consumer good that is just something you got to pay for, and you, you get what you pay for, and you got to spend the money yourself, and then spend decades paying it back. And um, that doesn't make any sense, um, and it is uh, harmful, certainly to individual students, but also to the country. You know, other other, in, other nations are are investing in higher education, public higher education, to try to uh, educate all of their citizenry, and the United States is going in the opposite direction. Well, I am with you on that one, a hundred percent. I I think it's a, an absolute shame, and I think it's a it's a, really a major tragedy because education, in whatever form that is, whether it's college or trade school or something else is is the the future i mean that is how we continue to grow and develop as a country and um, as a world and make positive change so i am uh, really uh, so glad you wrote this book and it was uh, wonderful to have you on as a guest again uh we've just been talking with paul tuff author of the years that matter most how college makes or breaks us uh thank you so much for joining us paul Thank you so much. And Aaron, good luck with those uh, college tours. That you've been, that you've yes, been I know. I'm not feeling anxious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, well, yes. Great talking to you both. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you, Paul. And thank you for tuning in to Mom Enough. I'm Aaron Erickson here with my mom, Marty, and we hope you'll tune in again next time. Content copyrighted by Marty and Aaron Erickson. All rights reserved. Visit momenough.com for an archive of all Mom Enough shows and many free downloadable resources on child development, parenting, and maternal health and well-being. Do you think I'll have a show called Kid Enough someday? 